The Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You know who could have used ZipRecruiter last night? The Warriors. They could not find an Andre Higudala replacement. They could have just gone on ZipRecruiter and said, can you find us a six foot six guy who could shoot threes and play defense? ZipRecruiter could have helped. ZipRecruiter's powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience for your job. It's so effective. 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site. In just one day, they would not have suggested Nick Young. My listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, SeatGeek is the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. I bet they have tickets for Game 5 Celtics-Cavs tonight. You can go in there and yell stuff at LeBron, and it'll bounce right off him because he's a robot for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event for NBA, NHL, baseball, whatever. Use promo code BS. Super easy. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. If you love the Rewatchables podcast that we did for the last year and a half or so, it returns tomorrow for a 20-episode season, 20 straight weeks, Lots of great stuff coming tomorrow. We are we are uh, bringing it back with the social network. Me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fennessy, and uh, and it goes all over the place. The big question. I won't even tell you the big question. You got to wait. There's a there's a question in there that I think is a really fascinating argument. Anyway, the social network on the rewatchables. Check it out and check out episode two of uh, On Shuffle. Our music podcast is coming up. We also have a couple announcements coming about a couple of new podcasts we're adding to the Ringer Podcast Network. No, Nephew Kyle did not get a podcast. We're about 50 more away before that happens. Anyway, coming up, I'm going to talk to a host on a Ringer Podcast show, J.J. Reddick, and we'll do some basketball stuff. But first, Pearl Jam. All right, we're going to call J.J. Reddick in a second. I flew to Boston, Massachusetts last night on JetBlue, which has televisions. I timed the flight so I could watch Rockets Warriors game four. It's amazing how fast a cross-country flight goes when you have basketball. It was really great. I really had a good time. It was a good game. It was a fascinating game. The Warriors, I think, were like minus 850 or minus 900 for the series heading into that game. Something like that. It dropped a little bit. Iguodala, it came out that Iguodala was probably not going to play. The line, I think, was nine. And the line dropped to eight, which is where Cousin Sal and I may or may not have gotten it. And I think it even dropped to seven and a half. The Iguodala thing is a huge, huge, huge subplot. And they made a big deal of it yesterday. It was almost like they didn't make a big enough deal because... Two things. He's he's their best perimeter defender. Um, he's their best glue guy. He's a scrapper claw fighter. And uh, and they just didn't have anyone to replace him. Like you can't you can't play Nick Young in a game like that, as we as we found out. They had all these dudes who weren't really ready to be in a game like that. And it reminded me a little bit of what happened to them in 2016 game seven finals against Cleveland. When Harrison Barnes just went into uh, uh, just a major funk, 
And Steve Kerr hit a point in the second half where he just couldn't trust him anymore. And it's like, what do you do? We only have four guys. Who, who's our fifth dude? Who do, who do we bring in here? This is before they had Durant. And rolled the dice with a couple people and then ended up bringing Festus Azili and LeBron got six straight points on him, swung the game, and then that was it. And they lost because they could not find that fifth guy. I love the basketball playoffs for so many different reasons, but one of them is at some point you have to have your five. You just have to have the five dudes that you trust implicitly, totally, and completely who are all going to fight and who are going to do whatever it takes to win the game. And I mean that in the least cliche way possible. The Rockets had their five guys, and it was a lineup that Jonathan Sharks and I had talked about last week. It's super small. It's P.J. Tucker. It's Ariza. It's Harden. It's Chris Paul, and it's Eric Gordon. And it's basically a smaller, small ball version of, of what the Warriors have. You can't really get away with playing that lineup against a great team, but you can if they're all like fighting their asses off. And that's what that game was all about. And that's why I loved it. I thought it was a classic, even though it was not well played. The coaching was terrible. The execution, especially down the stretch, was bad. I mean, the Warriors took probably seven or eight of the worst shots they've probably taken during the entire career. I mean, shots hitting the backboard. They just completely fell apart offensively, partly because they were tired and partly because the, the Rockets were just completely unafraid of them. They were fighting for everything. They were pushing. They were shoving them. They were shoving them off picks. They were in their mugs. They set the tone from from a from a fouling standpoint that either the referees were going to call every single play a foul or they weren't going to call anything a foul. And and uh, it was really really great to watch. I had a lot of respect for Tucker and Ariza. And I think if Toronto had kept Tucker and just let Serge Ibaka go last summer, their their uh, their playoffs might have been different. But the the thing that really stuck out and the thing that's important, I think, about the Celtics-Cavs game five tonight is how unafraid they were of the Warriors, how they talked to them the whole time. They did not put up with any Draymond stuff. They fought for every loose ball, hard fouls, um, kept attacking the rim. They looked scared in the first quarter, and then I think Eric Gordon snapped them out of it. And those five guys just really wanted it. I thought Capella, he wasn't a disaster, but those five guys were who won them the game. And um, it's a good lesson because what I saw from the Celtics in game four was a team that was very deferential to LeBron, a team that seemed kind of honored to be there and couldn't believe they had gotten that far and didn't seem like they were ready to actually fight to win the game. And you look at all those dunks and layups. Why do you miss dunks? Why do you miss layups? Cause you're afraid you're going to get fouled or you're afraid you're going to screw up. And that's like tentative stuff. They missed four dunks. Uh, at least two of them, they got fouled up, but whatever. The, the, especially Tatum and Brown, and you can't blame them because they're a combined 41 years old. I think they're combined about as old as Kyle Korver is. But um, you're not going to beat LeBron being deferential. You're not. You're going to beat him if you're clawing and you're fighting and you're throwing haymakers at him. And that's the difference. The Cavs came out for game four. I thought it was smart. People thought I was bitching about the officiating because I did this tweet during game four and I wasn't. The Cavs were smart in game four. They were pushing and pulling and clawing. And every time Tatum or Brown was coming around a pick, they were grabbing them and Rogier. And, and they basically set the tone early on. The refs stopped call, weren't calling anything. And it was smart. They turned it into a rugby game. It was a really physical game. 
And it threw the Celtics off and they weren't ready to do what they needed to do. I think game five will be a little different because uh, the home crowd, young legs, the fact that LeBron had a ton of miles put on him in game four, that, that was a hard game for him. He, he had a lot of, I think he had 27 or 28, 28 field goals, like 14 free throws. He played 42 minutes. He was, he had to play defense that game. And now they got to play two nights later, and that's tough. I think it's tough for guys like Corver and Jr. with the legs. They only really played seven guys in that game, which uh, which I loved what Mike D'Antoni did last night with that too. By the way, he played he played six and he played Gerald Green twelve minutes. But this is the playoffs. This is when you know you ride with your best dudes. And uh, there's some stuff I could, we're going to talk about with JJ in a second. What I think the Celtics can do in this game, but the the big takeaway from last night is the Rockets just didn't want their season to end and and really fought their asses off to stay alive. I don't know if they can win the series, but there's a competitive spirit and a mental toughness with them that you saw during the season too because you don't win 65 games unless you have it. They played the Celtics in Houston, I think in February, maybe March, and the Celtics should have won the game and Houston just decided to take it from them in the past in the last two minutes and really, really ratcheted it up and were super physical and just more competitive and they stole the game. And it felt like a little bit of what they did last night. Again, I didn't think the Warriors played well. I have no idea what Durant was doing in the fourth quarter. It does not seem like anyone can guard him. And yet he's shooting 28 footers with a hand in his face. I don't understand why he's just not taking people near the basket. I don't understand why he gave the ball up at the end of the game. It was a weird game for him, and it seems like it throws him off a little when Curry really gets going like he did in the third quarter. It's like Durant can't figure out what his place is. So they have their own stuff to figure out. But I'll tell you, if if Iggy's not healthy, um, I absolutely think Houston could win this series. Now, game seven, home court advantage, not positive that matters with this Golden State team. I don't think it really matters where they play, and I'm not really positive it matters with Houston either. Cause I think they can win in either place and it's just going to come down to who wants it more, who gets hot in the fourth quarter. And, uh, which is, which is great. It sounds like totally basic, but sometimes that's what basketball is. And especially when two teams are evenly matched, I do think these two teams are pretty evenly matched. So anyway, uh, let's take one break and then we're going to call JJ. Let's talk about properclot.com. Every guy knows that it's hard to find a dress shirt that fits collar too tight sleeves too long. Shirts too loose? Ah, I have some good news. Ordering a custom fit shirt has never been easier thanks to Proper Cloth. Create a custom shirt size in seconds. By just answering 10 easy questions, no measuring required, choose from over 20 collar styles, 10 cuff styles, 500 fabric styles, from classic to business, completely customize your shirt. Get the style you want, all high quality, with the absolute best quality and craftsmanship. Starting at just $80. They guarantee a perfect fit, meaning that if somehow your shirt doesn't fit perfectly, they will remake it for free. Stop wearing shirts that don't fit. Look your best. Go to propercloth.com slash BS. Enter gift code BS to save $20 on your first shirt again. Propercloth.com slash BS gift code BS. All right. We're going to call JJ Reddick. He is on his cell phone wandering around somewhere in Brooklyn. Hopefully the connection is good. Here we go. All right, on the line right now, Philadelphia 76ers guard, host of the J.J. Reddick podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. J.J., how are you? Uh, I'm doing all right. You know, still 
sort of decompressing from the season. Um, you know, it's a, it's, the season is very emotional. Uh, it's, a, it's a grind, especially the playoffs. And it takes a little bit of time. It takes a couple of weeks to, to sort of wind down and uh, return to, to civilian life and, and, and dad life. Was that the toughest uh, loss you've had, or was there something at Duke, or where where does it rank? Round two against the Celtics. Um, I would say as of right now, it was uh, as disappointing as 2010 and 2015. Mm. Um, when you when you feel like you you leave a little bit on the table. Uh, it, it, it's harder to deal with. Um, you know, the end of my Duke career was, that was, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, you know, that was an emotional time as well. Um, because there, there was, I knew there was never going to be another time where I, I got to play for Duke. It was a dream of mine growing up. And, uh, and so that was, that was hard, but, um, you know, to, the, the, the playoffs and, and sort of this, this, you know, trophy this prize that you're that you're chasing that you think about that you dream about uh when you're on a team where you feel like you have a chance and it ends and it ends abruptly because you're talking you, you know you're thinking to yourself on two weeks ago last two two wednesdays ago you're thinking we have a home game friday night you're planning yeah. for a home game friday night you're planning to play game seven in boston on sunday and uh and then it just ends and and it it, it hits you really hard and uh, i think yeah, when I think about like the emotions in the locker room after after those losses, Game Five in Boston is it was like Game Seven in Houston in '15, and and Game Six in Boston in 2010 when we lost in the Eastern Conference Finals. Were you just thinking, man, what happened? Because right before that Boston series, you guys were favored to win the title. You'd become kind of the quote unquote hot team. I was a believer. I thought you had the most talent of anyone in the East. Cleveland wasn't playing that well. And it just seemed lined up. Is that bad for a young team to start hearing about how 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 good you are and how well everybody thinks you're doing? Uh, it, probably, probably. Um, the thing that I think we we and we meaning the Seventy Sixers in our group uh, learned is with each round of the playoffs, it gets harder. Uh, the mistakes get magnified. Um, your margin of error gets slimmer. It just becomes extremely difficult to win a game. When you think about our series, and this is not like I'm not. This is not me doing some revisionist history. But when you think about our series, three of the games we lost, we had a fourth quarter lead. So in a yeah. way, that series could have been four-one. Us, we could have we could have won that series in game five. So. So that's, that's where I think we learn, like, it's, it's, I told the guys this the whole season, like, to win in this league is difficult. To win, you know, what we, we won 52 games. To win 52 games in this league is difficult. We, we accomplished a lot. But to win uh, deep in the playoffs is so hard. It's so hard. Well, I, I actually agree with you. I thought that series came down to, like, six plays. Because game yeah. two, you're up like 22. But even like in the fourth yeah. quarter, um, you easily could have won game two. Game three, Bellinelli's yeah. over the line by eight inches. Now, that would have been an crazy, crazy, insane shot. 
and then you blow the Horford yeah, play. Yeah, or even the, the play be, the play before that, where we we have the last shot, and you know Ben Ben sort of runs into Joe. I'm passing to Joe, and ball gets turned over, and they go down and score a layup. And then we yeah. we we needed Bellinelli's shot to go to overtime. So really, there's two plays there where we either win on the last shot, or if Marco's two inches deeper, we win at the buzzer. Um, and the shot and that game... will kill me. Yeah, the shot. I was going to say the shot that will kill me, and that I still you know haven't really gotten over was one hundred nine, one hundred seven, under under a minute and a half, I think, to play. TJ drove baseline and in game five and and hit me on the wing, and I probably got my best look I got all series, and uh, and just missed it. And that that would have put us up five in game five. You know, I think I think at that point, like we had a re- we would have, had would have had a really good chance to, to close out that game. I was going to bring that up because where I was sitting and where you were and where the hoop was was a direct line, and you shot that and it was going in. It was short, but when you released, it was like, yeah. oh my god, we just lost. And yeah. by the way, I should mention. Um, I know we're friendly and I know you, you have a pod with the ringer and we've known each other for a long time. It was terrifying to root against you in a playoff series. I felt like, and now, now my dad and I are going through it with Corver too, where you just feel like anytime the dude's open, he's going to make a shot, even if he's going sideways from 28 feet. And I think everybody in the building thought you were making that. And, but on the other hand, the Celtics really banged you up, not only in that game, but in that series, but especially in that game. And that's like the kind of thing that when there's a minute left, you don't have the same legs you have, you know? And I think that yeah. there was some attrition. Did you feel that? Yeah. You know, I, I think that the way I train my body, I've gotten used to the attrition. Um, I'm always a little freaked out when teams don't play me physical. Cause I'm like, what, what's going on here? Um, yeah. The, the, you know, basically if I went to go check into the game, uh, and Marcus smart was out of the game, Brad would send him over the scores table too. I mean, that, that, that was five games of that. Um, so, you know, he's obviously, uh, a tenacious guy and really physical, um, you know, had to, had to meander through a bunch of pick and rolls guarding him on the other end as well for, for the last four games uh, of that series. So. It was, uh, yeah, it was a lot. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to say like, you know, I missed it. I was short because of the attrition. Because I think two plays later, I hit a thirty-foot bomb off the dribble. Yeah, you did. And, uh, that was insane. You know, so, so it was like, I, I don't know that it was that. You know, I, I would have loved to have had that shot back. Um, I immediately after the game, I remember, I think it was, uh, it was two thousand eleven. Um, Atlanta in the first round game six at Atlanta and we were down two and Stan set up a little play for me to come off a little pin down from Dwight and, uh, and missed it left. And we lost the series on that play. And, you know, those are the ones like when you look back on your career, like I've hit game winners, I've hit shots that go into, you know, send games into overtime. I've hit, I've hit shots that, you know, were up, you know, Miami series, for example, in game four at Miami, I, I, you know, I hit the shot that, sort of put the game away. So you, you, you hit clutch shots. You remember the ones you missed though. Those are the ones that just haunt you that you think about all the time. Yeah. Yeah. That the Celtics is funny. Cause I was in the building really feeling like they were going to come back 
and they just couldn't get it. It was one of those games they couldn't get over the hump. And then all of a sudden, the last two minutes, it was a classic, you know, missed a shot there, good good offensive rebound on the other side. And then all of a sudden, the game's over and the Celtics won. And that's what's so cruel and crazy and exciting about the playoffs. Even last night, the Rockets-Warriors you know, I'm still not sure how the Rockets won, but all of a sudden the game was over. They're <laughs> celebrating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I texted you last night, and I was like, "I'm I'm at I'm at a, a spot in Bushwick, so I'm not watching the game." I got home, turned the television on, and they came back from commercial to, and it was Steph's missed three. So then I rewatched the last couple of minutes. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, it, it. Doc used to always talk about this. Uh, you know, the playoffs they really do come down to, to one, one, maybe two possessions. And there's an accumulation of that. Of course, as you go throughout the game, those mistakes sort of add up. But when you look back at sort of these close games, you're like, Oh, it's that play or that play. If it swings one way or the other, you know, maybe a series tilts and we come back or, you know, like I said, there was a chance we could have been up sort of three, one going into that game five as well. Yeah. You, you know, in a series, you're really ultimately as good as your two best players. And I think both guys were a year away from being able to put it together for four straight rounds like that. Like Embiid, especially, and it's, I, I can't blame him because it was by far the most games and the most minutes he'd ever played, but you could see him getting tired in the fourth quarter. I don't, I, I'm sure he's going to, this summer, his conditioning is going to be at a whole other level because you could just feel it. Like he didn't have the same legs. And then Simmons, it was his first professional basketball year he's got you know when you think like this is the worst he's ever going to be it's kind of scary to think where it's going to go you know <laughs> that's a that's an interesting way to look at it that's an interesting yeah, I mean, way to look at it well think I about thought, it you I have kids show, right I, like yeah how yeah, old is your I, oldest I, kid they're four and two yeah yeah the four-year-old it's like the four-year-old's gonna be five it's gonna be better at stuff and then they turn six and they get better yeah. at stuff and that's kind of what an nba career is you know, and Simmons was out there trying to run an offense and do all these different things. And, you know, he's switching on D and he, in five years from now, he's going to be terrifying. Yeah. I think it takes, it takes a little bit of time to sort of figure out that rhythm. Uh, I, I'm, I think it's remarkable the season that he had. Um, he, I would say that he exceeded sort of any expectations. I mean, he, he, He's a unicorn, and even like post All Star break, I thought when we came back from All Star break, he was just at another level. His focus, his intensity, like it was like something. Joe too, until he got hurt, of course. I, there's something that happened when those guys were in LA, where I don't know if they saw, you know, what it was like to sort of be a part of that All Star weekend, and maybe how the other superstars acted or something. But it was they came back, and I was like, whoa. You know, from 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 game one post All Star break, it's like both those guys had a different demeanor. I was going to say on Joe though, you know, the conditioning thing I think is real, but it, I also think, you know, not to make an excuse for him, but to, to to sit out that amount of games and then have have to come back in the middle of a playoff series against Miami, play with a mask. I think I think Boston. Well, he had a stretch. In game two, I'm, I'm sorry, in game five in the first half in the second quarter, when he looked about as unstoppable as anyone in the history of the NBA for about five minutes. I was like, oh my God, what do we do? He's going to have 80 points. Um, yeah. And, you know, he's going to he's gonna get better at stuff. I'll say as a Celtic fan, 
I was much more excited when he was 28 feet from the basket than I was when he was seven feet from the basket. You know, I think she's really hard to guard him and the Celts were throwing everything. I think the Celts stumbled on something with Simmons that he's going to have to figure out this summer. And I'm sure he will, but just putting, you know, in the regular season, you can, you can run up and down and guys aren't doing that. They're not as focused defensively. They haven't played you five times over the course of two weeks, stuff like that. But he's going to have to learn, you know, when people get back on D and they set that little wall around the foul line, what's his, what's the next chess move now? And he's going to see everyone's talking about, he's got to learn how to shoot. And for me, it's like what he's going to learn are those little off balance seven footers and those running floaters and spin moves and all the stuff from seven to 10 feet is what his future is on those fast breaks. What What do you think? Yeah, I think you hit you hit the nail on the head with with the wall at the foul line. I mean, if you if you watched that series, and really, I, I mean, I watched the whole Milwaukee Boston series as well, and I've watched a little bit of this conference finals. I've watched two of the games as as the the Gian, you know as Giannis brings the ball down, as as Ben brings the ball down, as LeBron brings the ball down, uh, either Horford or Baines or Morris if he's off the ball, like whoever that that secondary defender is is in a wide stance, arms out, just sitting at the nail. I mean, sitting right directly at the free throw line. And uh, and so I think that the discipline required to do that actually takes a, a fair amount of effort. But in the playoffs, you have to do it. And and I think that's where I think uh, you're right. Ben, ben needs to sort of make adjustments. But I actually, everybody talks about shooting. I think for him, uh, you know, a thing that would really help his game is is, is – playing off the ball in terms of cutting, ducking in. And he did it at times this year. And when he does it, it's phenomenal. But that to me is just getting a feel for when he's, when he's off the ball and figuring out ways to, to score that way. Yeah, it's I agree the, with actually you. one of the, it's one, it's one of the, it's one of the reasons Dwayne Wade was able to score in the high twenties, you know, in his prime, I, he, to me was one of the best cutters ever. And, uh, and, you know, he was a guy that you, you didn't necessarily fear his outside shot. Um, but you, 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 you know, you had this sort of account for him. I think Tom uh, Haberstroh did that article a few years back about gravity. And he found that, you know, Dwayne Wade, although he wasn't considered a, an elite shooter, had a similar gravity to, the, to, to you know, Kyle Korver. And it's because of, of his elite cutting ability. And I think that's something that Ben, if he added to his game, would, would be huge. I, I hate giving away all my secrets of what it was like to root against your team, but um, I never wanted him to post up. I was terrified every time he was posting up. And I think ultimately when he learns how to go baby hook with his right hand and his left hand from six feet away, I'm I'm just frightened. And I know it's going to happen. I know within three years, he'll have those, those shots. I was, I was really impressed by how he kept trying to solve issues that he had never seen before. Like it, it, in a weird way, I didn't think he played that well in the Boston series, but in a weird way, it gave me more confidence that he's going to figure out long-term what's going to happen. Cause I do think he's really unusually smart as a basketball player and he's going to figure out like, Oh, they did this. So now I have to do this, <laughs> you know, and yeah. then it'll go like that. In, 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 in a way, in a way, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I played with Chris for four years in in LA. Uh, I've obviously watched LeBron my 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 whole career. It, those guys are calculating. 
And, uh, and I think Ben is on that same level of, of being calculating, uh, and sort of, I, I use, uh, M night Shyamalan said this about him when he spoke to our team and I've told the media this a couple of times, but you know, Ben is, it's like, he's, he's sitting behind a glass wall watching everyone else play. And that's, he's, he's like above it, you know, you know what I mean? And he, so he he sees things that other guys don't see. And, uh, and he, and he calculates those things. He's constantly making these sort of reads and decisions in in split second scenarios. And, uh, and as he gets more experience and and plays, I mean, yeah, he's, he's going to be on that level of, of Chris or LeBron, uh, the, the, the mental side of things and figuring things out. Um, we're gonna take a quick break. Let's talk about Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting. Legendary sportscaster Dan Patrick from the Dan Patrick Show, Sunday Night Football, ESPN, Sports Center, has teamed up with Full Sail University to offer an accelerated bachelor's degree in sportscasting. Full Sail University combines hands-on learning, immersive projects, and faculty with real-world experience to prepare students for life in the media industry. For the Dan Patrick School, they brought in some of sports media's best to be part of this program, including longtime ESPN producer, multi-Emmy winner, and a guy who spent an incredible amount of time in my basement in the 1980s playing video games and micro league baseball, my buddy Gus Ramsey. He's heading up the program. Sportscasting pros like Jay Harris, Kevin DeGande, many more names that you know, they're all involved. And I am thrilled to be part of the advisory board and might even Skype in to do a couple classes in this program, students will learn sportscasting inside and out, on camera, behind the camera, podcasting, radio, interviewing, everything in between. We even gave them some tips at the ringer because, you know, you find out when you have a multimedia company in 2018, hey, I wish there were more of this person. So we gave them some tips. You can earn a bachelor's degree there in about half the time, as short as 20 months at the Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting. Choose to earn your degree online or on Full Sail's campus in Orlando, Florida, which is a nice place to learn more about Full Sail University's Dan Patrick School of Sportscasting. Go to fullsail.edu slash Bill Simmons. Back to JJ. All right, we're back. Who impressed you the most on the Celtics? Who impressed me the most? Yeah, um, who's who, surpri- who surprised you during that series where you're like, wow. You know, I, I, I like, um, I like the, I like the growth of players and, um, I, I think Jalen Brown made a huge leap this year. Um, he, he's really good. Um, Tatum though, I would say is, is it was probably the most impressive player. Um, uh, because you know, there's, there's not many guys left in the league. Like it's, it's not a, it's not, we, our league is not like, go give it to a player and let him get a bucket. That's just not yeah. our league anymore. Um, the Warriors, you know, have won championships uh, without, you know, without playing that way. Now they have, a, they have sort of a, a stopgap with, with Katie now, but that, that's just not our league. And so Tatum is a guy that you literally can just throw the ball to and he'll get a bucket. And um, they, they run a little stack X play, a little loop screen up top for him. And he kind of makes a read depending on how his guard guy guards him. He either goes to the right or left side, and he's got sort of a slot drive and slot ISO from either side. And uh, because he's catching the ball on the move, 
it's it was the hardest play for us to guard in that series. Um, you know, it was just it, he's he's so dynamic with the ball, especially when he catches on the move, his jab steps, his dribble game, pull up game, getting to the rim. Um, I, I, I rarely rarely seen. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a guy at nineteen that polished offensively. Twenty, I guess it's he's been, twenty now, but yeah, he turned twenty like in March, I think. It was shocking to watch yeah. him. And what's funny is. Like right now I'm I'm frustrated because during this Cavs series, they've, you know, as, as you said, you go up each round and the intensity and the spotlight gets bigger and you just kind of have to learn how to adjust and the margin for all that. And the reality is they have Jared Smith on them and watching it, just like, just take him to the basket. You can go buy him every time. What are you doing? And you, you wait for the light bulb to go off in that Sixers series. It felt like there were these stretches where he's like, oh yeah, I can go by everybody. I can do whatever I want. And as he, you know, five years from now, he's going to be stronger and he's going to know how to do that, you know? And now it's kind of like watching a baby deer running around in the wilderness who occasionally remembers <laughs> what to do. I, I mean, we went, look, we might look back at that series you guys had and be like, wow, all those guys were in that series. This is unbelievable. I, you know? Yeah. I probably, if, if there's a future series, I probably won't be, you know what I mean? I won't be like five years from now. They're not going to be like, Oh, JJ's still, he's still playing. You know, I, I don't know about that, but like for those guys, like the Tatums and the Browns, like I, Brett kept saying this, he's like, we're, we're going to, we're going to need to go through these guys in the next 10 years. Now in the NBA, things can change quickly. I don't know if it's for the next 10 years, but certainly with, with, you know, the young group that, that the Sixers have and the young group that the Celtics have, like, there's potential there for some some epic playoff matches matchups over the next five to seven years. What does Marcus Smart do that we wouldn't know just from watching on TV or being at the games? What's what makes him so annoying? What makes him so annoying? You know what's funny? Like I so for whatever reason, like he he's feisty, man. He he gets into it with guys. Um you know, we did, we didn't have like uh, any back and forth. Um, I uh, Jay, when we played in London, Jalen was guarding me for that game, and um, at one point in the second half, he I, I'm going to cuss on your show. I'm sorry, but he called me a bitch, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I looked at him. I was like, ah, I don't play that, and he's like, Oh, okay, I'm sorry. So like, that was my only interaction. We played them uh, nine times, and and. Uh, one time in the so twice in the preseason, we played them eleven times this year, and yeah. uh, that was my only like negative interaction with anyone on their team. But that, does does Smart do anything that we're not noticing on TV defensively? Does he does he have tricks that I'm not seeing? Uh, no, I mean he he moves well laterally. Uh, he's fast enough to chase. He's big enough to to sort of contest. Um, and he. And he cares. I mean, that's uh, to me. That's like that's ninety percent of it is just the effort to care and sort of take that responsibility and take pride in, in sort of being that guy that is 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 the lockdown guy, is the is sort of the dirty work guy. I mean, the thing that he killed us on, and, and it happened twice on me. I think once in game two, or maybe game one, and then one one of the games at home. Like he's so good on offensive rebounds. You, as a guard now in our league, you don't ever have to really block out your guy. Most of the time, you're going to sort of crack back on the big 
or collect loose change around the free throw line. You don't ever really have to account for ones and twos to crash the offensive glass. And, uh, and so he's, 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 he's great at that. I mean, they, Brad gives him the seat, you know, Brad gives him the freedom to just, to just chase down loose balls. It's, it's, uh, it's one of the, the hardest things about, about guarding him. Did the uh, Boston crowd treat you sensitively or were they, or did they veer on being a little mean from time to time? I'm going to guess the latter. Uh, you know, I, they're, they're, they're unruly. Like I, I would, every guy on our team afterwards, uh, was like, that's the loudest place that they've ever played. Um, I was a little worried. I can't remember if it was game one or two. It might've been both of them, but they were like later games. I think they were like eight thirty starts. And yeah. I was like, oh man, this, this is three and a half hours of drinking. You know, yeah. when these guys get off work and come to the game like that, that worried me, you know, they're going to be extra loud. My parents were at game five. Um, and, uh, and I went and saw them after the game and, and before we got on the plane and my mom was like, that's, that's the loudest arena I've ever been in. And I mean, she, you know, she's been in some pretty incredible arenas, including Cameron indoor stadium for some pretty big time Duke games. So for her to say that, I mean, it, 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 it's the truth. I mean, their fans are, are nuts in terms of how they treat me. I mean, I, I don't, I don't get caught up in that. I don't, I don't really, I don't really hear anything to be honest with you. Uh, at this point, I've, I've heard it all. Well, what, what you would have heard was just fear every time you were open. <laughs> I agree. I, I think the crowds have been great. It's one of the reasons they, they're they 9-0 and at home. And it's really, the as weird as this is to say, their biggest advantage in these, you know, it's basically best two out of three now against Cleveland, but two are home. And yeah. the crowd is so into these games, it really does give the younger guys a little extra energy. Like, you can feel it. You can feel it with... Brown and Tatum and Rogier and Smart specifically, it's it just kind of nudges them to a, another competitive level, and I I do think it matters. Um, you mentioned um, you mentioned your parents were there for Game Five. Is, yeah, I mean they've probably been seeing you. God, I they they probably seen from the beginning of your basketball career all the way through. Is it like surreal to watch you at this point in your career? You're like the veteran, the leader. <laughs> You're yelling at TJ McConnell, your buddy during the game. And uh, yeah. What's it like yeah. for them at this point? First of all, the play the play where I yelled at TJ, like everybody everybody saw on TV, like I yelled at him and we scored on the play. I wasn't yelling him about that play. I was yelling him at a previous play because he's such a knucklehead. And he doesn't listen to me. Um, <laughs> No, uh, I, so I actually talked with my dad one time earlier this season about that because I'm one of five kids and, and we all played AU basketball. All of us got division one athletic scholarships. My parents have, you know, traveled all over the world to watch their kids play basketball and football, um, in my brother's case. And, uh, and, and, you know, I'm the, I'm obviously the, the last one playing and I'm still playing and. And I think the word you used was correct. I think it's the same word that my dad used, which was surreal. It's surreal, you know, to have a 33-year-old son uh, competing at the highest level in basketball. And they've been watching me play now for 26 years. And uh, it's nuts, man. It, it really is. I actually, you know, probably the most emotional moment of, of the night for me was when I saw my dad. Yeah. You know, and... and he and I got to spend a ton of time together this season, which is rare because I spent the last four years in LA and prior to that, I was in Orlando and my dad was still working. He retired a few years ago. So he came up a bunch to Philly and we, you know, he'd come to games and we'd go get dinner afterwards. And, um, 
you know, it was just like I saw him after the game. It was like it was as emotional as I've been in, in years because, you know, he, he knows sort of how much I put into this and, and how disappointing uh, those, those moments can be. You know, it's funny. My, I was sitting with my dad for game five and when you and TJ were yelling at each other, he's like, they're yelling at each other. I'm like, they're best friends. It's fine. Um, <laughs> the, but that's the thing with basketball. TJ's, like, my, I'm little, so, TJ's my little brother, man. He, we're, we're, yeah. we're, we're literally, we're siblings. We're siblings. I, I don't trust basketball teams that don't yell at each other. Now it could go to, like, you could see it with the Clippers the last two years yeah. you were there where yeah. part of the problem was they weren't yelling at each other. And that's when you have so a problem. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. I think it's, I think it's healthy yeah. to have disagreements on the court. I think it's healthy to talk through things. I think it's even healthy sometimes to, to say I'm right. You think you're right, but you're wrong. The other guy say the same thing and you move on. Um, you have to be able to sort of have those moments. You hash it out and then you move on to the next play. And, you know, TJ and I were fine. Uh, he's going to, he's going to come up to New York later this summer with his wife. We're going to have a few days up here. Like, you know, he, it, it's, it, it's, it's the, the not talking through where all of a sudden this resentment builds. Yeah. And that's about as unhealthy as it gets. When and you get eye rolls. Really, it's the passive aggressive shit, man. Just, yeah. be, just be aggressive. Just be aggressive. Yeah. Well, that that's what sunk the Clippers those last two years. It was eye rolls and shoulder shrugs and head turns and just being exasperated. And that's when you know a team is in trouble. I like when teams yeah. talk and yell. And, like, you know, it's funny. Chris, you can see him this year. I know you talk to him all the time. Um, yeah. Although you're worried about getting him on a podcast because on the phone you think he'll, you think he'll be too loquacious, is that the reason? <laughs> we need you need to get him in no. person. <laughs> no, I need to get I need to get I need to get him in person. I need to get uh, him in person. I need to get but him in he person. really he really feels like he's on the right team. Now whether yeah. he caught this team at at too late of a point in his career, we're going to find out over these next uh, three weeks. But. Um, this is the ty- kind of team that is kind of his team. The, you know, you have these tough dudes who are ready to Ariza Tucker. These dudes are ready to yell back at him. Uh, Harden is unassailable. You're not going to get to him. And he could just kind of stomp around and beat Chris Paul and no, and nobody takes it personally. I didn't feel like that was always the case on the, uh, on the Clippers. Cause that's what he has to do to succeed. It's just this, the way he acts. Right. I, I think as much as we talk about, um, the right fit for players in terms of basketball skills. There's also correct fits for personalities, and an NBA locker room is a very delicate uh, is a very delicate place. Um, and I, 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 I totally agree with you that he's he's on a team right now. That I would also say, like D'Antoni's D'Antoni's personality allows Chris to be himself. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, I, agree. I think that's part of it too. It's not just, not just the teammates, but I think just D'Antoni's personality is a little more laid back, um, a little more unassuming. Um, although, you know, he's like any coach, he yells and screams, but, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a better fit, I think for Chris's personality. And you and Chris ended up on these new teams this year and we're both used in better ways, I think, than maybe you were the last two years in LA and it was happier situations. What, what percentage of 
your texts and phone calls the first couple months were just like, oh man, I'm so happy. What about you? Oh, you're happy too. Like, was that just October, November? Uh, yes. So like, we, so I, I obviously <laughs> at that point in the season, I was still driving down like myself. So I would, I would make these phone calls and like talk to people for, for an hour. And so Chris also had a commute. Uh, I think his was about an hour too. So we would call each other on our commute. And a lot of it was like comparing and contrasting, you know, our, our early experiences with the last four years in my case, six years in his case. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the, the best thing for me as, as his friend is like hearing joy in his voice and like hearing how happy he was and is, um, I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, but like, you know, it's, I, 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 I want him, I told him this, um, you know, last summer, like in June. And I, and I mentioned this to him, I think after our third year when we lost to the Blazers in the playoffs, but like, I want Chris to win a championship, but whether it's with me or not, like, I just want to see him win a championship. I think he's, I think he's deserving of a championship. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it's this year. I would, I would love to see that. Well, they might've caught a break if, uh, Iguodala's not a hundred percent. They needed something, some sort of karma luck thing to go. Not that injuries are luck, but you know what I mean? They got that one yeah. little break that swung the series. Cause the, the Warriors just didn't have enough players for, for game four. What did Chris say about Harden? What's like the biggest revelation you've learned from somebody who's just playing with Harden day in, day out? I'll be honest. I, I, I don't think we've talked about James once. Uh, wow. Okay. The things we, yeah. Uh, I, I, that, that's kind of weird. I don't know why I, you know, I, the only thing that we talked about with Harden was like right before the season started back in September on one of those drives down to Philly. Um, I was, we, we were talking about like how they were going to make it work. And, you know, I, Chris and I agreed about why. And part of that was just cause they're both two of the smartest players in, in our league and they'll yeah. be able to figure it out. Um, and D'Antoni is a smart guy. Like they just it, intelligence is is so underrated. And so that was the only time. Like the things I mean, look, the things we talk about basketball wise are a lot of like logistical stuff. Like you know, he brought Rich Williams, strength coach, who was our strength coach in L.A. We we talked about Rich. Um, obviously, we talk about our families and our kids. And 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 you know, for Chris and I, being a father is probably our our number one priority, even even more so than basketball. Yeah. Was it weird that to, that you almost signed with the Rockets? Like you came basically yeah, the eleventh yeah. hour of it, and it didn't happen. But I mean yeah. that that's yeah, it that's kind of a tiny what if for the season in a way because like PJ Tucker, who they signed instead, was one of the heroes of Game Four. But yet, yeah. I think you would have stretched the floor for them. It's interesting. I don't I don't know which version of that yeah. team is I would say, I would more say dangerous like for, for 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 their defense and what they do. I think PJ is like. Uh, uh, a perfect fit. Um, you know, he's a perfect fit. And, uh, I, there was, <laughs> when the season first started and I was sort of navigating the waters of a new, you know, a, a new situation. Um, I think you always have a little bit of like, did I make the right decision? You know, we were yeah. one in four after five games that, that fourth loss was to the Rockets. Uh, and you're like, did I, did I, did I make the right decision? Um, and then, you know, for me, I absolutely did, and I have you know no regrets about my 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 first year. Hopefully, my first year of many in Philly. But it was just uh, it was you know it was one of those things where 
think we talked about this last summer, but like when Daryl, you know, took the fourth year off the table, it just didn't make sense for me at that point. Um, yeah. You know, it was, it was like, it was like three for 36 and it would, would have required a sign and trade with the Clippers. And, and, you know, I, I had the one year offer and, and Brian kind of put a time, a timetable on it. You know, he said, you got about 20 minutes to decide. Uh, I'm going to do a meeting with uh, Iguodala, you know, who I'm going to make the same offer to. Um, so at that point, I just, I just made the choice and, and uh, yeah, no regrets. It was, uh, it was as enjoyable of a year of basketball and as enjoyable of a year being in a, a fun culture that I've had. Um, well, it's, it seems like a pretty safe bet that you're coming back and yet, they the Philly is involved. I mean, this is an unusual summer. There's so many. Where's this guy going? Where's this guy going? What about that guy? Yeah. And Philly is one of the teams that's just in every trade rumor, uh, or yeah. every free, signing rumor, or every rumor, even for people like LeBron. Do you guys follow that stuff? Does that when you hear that stuff, does that even drift into the locker room? Yeah, we talk about it. Um, there's a there's a group of us that. Uh, are in the hot tub and the cold tub after practice or after shoot around, you know, every day. And, and those, 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 those conversations inevitably happen. Um, you know, and I, I think, I think if you have a chance, you know, I'm not just speaking about the 76 here, just in general, like if you have the chance to get LeBron James, you go for it and you figure out the rest later. Yeah. See, I, that's, I know you have to say that, but I, I think, Privately, you should be doing the opposite because, you know, if they sign LeBron, that might mean you you might get squeezed out. Yeah. Might, no, no, JJ, we're yeah. going to figure yeah. it out. And then they squeeze you out. Yeah. You need to convince Embiid to say publicly, if we get LeBron, I'm out of here. You got to trade me. And because I saw it firsthand, game four Philly, that crowd loves Embiid. I was not prepared for yeah. the unconditional love yeah. of Embiid in the, in the stands. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it was insane yeah. so you just all you need to do is have Embiid say one time we don't want him and that's it you're good well who's to say that those conversations haven't happened already Bill <laughs> <laughs> I would also just say one thing to that to what you just said like my dad when I was growing up he said this to me all the time and I say this to my four-year-old all the time too it's not always about you and yeah. uh you know in my career like it is about me in my career but like I recognize that in this sport, in a team sport with all these complicated, uh, you know, cap cap things and uh, and uh, you know, a, a owner's desire, a, free, a front office's desire to do certain things, timelines, age, all that stuff. Like I recognize, it's not always about me. It's not about me. So I'm okay with that. Who was a funnier teammate midseason addition, just from a chemistry personality standpoint, Bellinelli or Ilyasova? Ilyasova, no doubt. Um, really. So, and I, I, Marco and I had a great relationship. Uh, he's a little more, he's a little more to himself. Um, I'll tell you the funniest guy on the team is Dario Sarge though. I mean, there's no doubt he is, he is the funniest guy on the team. Although Joel is, is probably a close second. I, uh, was walking around Boston before game the day before game five. And I was going through the park near where the, uh, the hotels are. And Sarge was sitting on a bench with two of his buddies at like four o'clock when they're just like these goofy, they just like three goofy 20 year olds like go to go to uh, just look at girls in Boston. I was dying. He seemed, he seemed like hilarious. I could just tell from walking by him. I was like, Oh, that guy's trouble. He seems funny. Yeah. 
He also um, he also uh, he also plays well with like foreign things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like with the accent and like he'll play dumb. He'll be coy sometimes. Like oh, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. Um, he's just you know he's got he's got a great sense of humor. He's it's dry and slapstick at the same time. He was out of everyone on Philly. I thought he was the one that got better as that Boston series went along. He wasn't prepared for it. I don't think the first two games and then. As it went along by game five, he was like, you know, he was a beast. Hey, we had to take one more quick break. One more break to talk about Sonos. Have you heard about Sonos One? It blends great sound with Amazon Alexa for hands-free control of your music and more. Use your voice to play songs, turn on lights, adjust the temperature, check news and traffic, manage smart devices, and more. With helpful Amazon Alexa skills, all using a single Sonos speaker. Sonos One backed by a pair of Class D amplifiers and custom-built drivers. The sound is face-melting and pure. And since Sonos is continually updating with new features, services, and skills, your music and voice options will keep getting better over time. Now, Sonos is offering the listeners of the Bill Simmons Podcast 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. The offer is available for a limited time only, cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code Bill10, Bill10, B-I-L-L-1-0, Bill10 at Sonos.com to receive this special offer. One more time, JJ Reddick. Last thing I want to talk to you about, and then you have to go pick up your kid and be a dad. Uh, yeah. you've been, you came in the league in 06. LeBron came yep. into the league three years earlier. And yep. you have been in the Eastern Conference for two thirds of your career, and you've obviously played LeBron a bunch of times. What do you, what do you see now from him? What's different about him? Um, it's funny because there's this whole controversy about the tracking data, saying that he was on average the slowest player in the Eastern Conference Finals, and to me. If you watch that, on average, that that sort of passes the eye test. I mean, he has figured out uh, where and when, to, to better than anyone that I can remember, definitely in my career, and I don't want to go into all-time greats here, but like to me, and anyone in my generation, he has figured out where and when to pick his spots, when and when to get his teammates involved, when to be aggressive. It's like the game just moves in slow motion to him. Um, and that's, to me, that's what makes them so hard to guard. Like you can talk about their defensive efficiencies, but when they sort of made that switch a couple years ago, I think it was after, after the first year when they lost to the Warriors that next season, they basically said, all right, we're just going to, we're just going to put shooters around them. Um, they're really impossible to guard. They are, um, if you play him one-on-one, um, you know, he's going to have 44, and he'll probably still get six to eight assists. And if you sort of send second defenders or try to double him, he's just too smart and too good of a passer, and he's a willing passer, um, that he's just going to find shooters, and they're going to hit 15 threes, and, and it's going to be a long night. I, just he's, he's, the smartest, he's the smartest player I've ever seen. I, I mean that. Like, he's the smartest player I've ever seen. Yeah, it was weird to me that that became a controversy that he was the slowest person in the playoffs and all that stuff. Cause it's like, yeah, he's, 
He's has more miles on him than speed. anyone. It's average speed. Like it's average speed. You know yeah, what I mean? Because he, like, he's, so, he's resting. Right. I look at those, I look at those tracking data after every game. I have those, that data sent to me. I look at my data. I look at the other team's data. I look at our data. And, you know, I think it would make sense. My average speed is higher, is on the high end. It's in the top, you know, two or three guys in the, in the game. You know, for, pick a game. I'm usually two or three in terms of highest average speed because I run off screens all the time. Yeah. You know, if LeBron is playing sort of back down ISO, and if he's playing sort of, I don't want to say LeBron's like a, like a, a lackadaisical defender, but if he's playing sort of off the ball in that roaming capacity, then there's times where he's not really moving on that end. Um, so I, it, it's not surprising. The other thing, too, is like specifically with Boston, all of our data was significantly down in terms of total mile, ran, and average speed for that series. Um, because they play such they, they really I mean, they play at a methodic pace where they're really sort of maximizing every possession. And so there are times if let's say they go into a Jason Tatum ISO where you may be standing for twenty seconds. Not, not that yeah. he has the ball, but as they bring the ball down, they get their little rub action, he comes off a little Iverson cut screen and, and then and then the next thing you know it's going to the other end, but you've been standing there for twenty seconds. Yeah, I don't I don't know why I think that data is interesting. But to me the part that was interesting was that LeBron had figured out how to save energy. Wasn't that he was like being lazy or not not exerting energy. It was like, no, he's actually this is brilliant. Um yeah. and it does seem like his tank is more full at the end of these games than I can remember. Especially like yeah. eleven and twelve, he was getting cramps and chewing his nails on the, on the sidelines and just looking completely worn out. Now he's at a different level. He's also, there's been moments even in this series against Boston. He's so freaking strong. Like there'll be times when like, you know, Rogier gets switched on him and Rogier like reaches in to try to like poke the ball away. And he just like bounces off LeBron. Like he's a building. And then LeBron will just stare down at him disgusted that, Roger would even try it. He's like, what are you doing? There's no way you're reaching around me. I'm 280 pounds. Uh, he's maximized the strength and all that stuff. The one thing I don't understand, though, because this has been a recurring theme this whole playoffs, these aren't pick and rolls anymore. Like Corralabob, my friend, was calling them pick and switches. And almost no nobody rolls anymore. It's all about the switch. And nobody can figure out to stop it, how to stop it. Is there any trick that you feel like kind of sort of works or is this just unstoppable? It, the thing that's tough is you can, you can hedge the first pick. If they're, if they're trying to bait the switch and get a smaller guy on LeBron, you can, you can sort of hedge on the first pick. The, the, the restream makes it really tough because um, it's usually lower. If you hedge on the first game, you're usually out of position for the second one. So you're kind of forced to do a switch. Um, you know, we call it like a, we, we have a term called late red. So a red is a switch for us. Um, a late red would be what we did with Al Horford. So as I think Marcus Smart or Terry Rozier comes off the ball screen with Horford, he pops to space. If the guard, and nor- normally if a five puts a screen and, and a guard is, is chasing the point guard over a screen, 
he would sort of have the freedom to pursue until he got back in front. But if they throw back to Horford, then it's a 15-foot closeout for a five-man Al Horford. He's either got a three or he's going to get downhill, and he's going to either make a play for another three or get a dunk. So those right. late reds, you know, Boston sort of based into the late red. And, and, and a lot of times when LeBron is on or off the ball, it's sort of the same concept. Hmm. Uh, I I would almost rather send the uh, the double one time, one-on-one the next time. It almost seems like it, you have to treat it like football, where each time you're doing something different to at least make yeah. the offense go, oh, what are they doing this time? And they have to like think and register for two seconds versus yeah. just we're doing this the whole game. Because I think LeBron's too smart. He just, yeah. over the course of the game, is like, oh, you're doing this. Okay, I'm going to do this. And then... I don't know. That that's the only thing I could think of. But damn, is it frustrating? So, so as you're as you're building out your team defense throughout the course of the year, you introduce your sort of base concepts right in training camp. And for the most part, with the exception of a few games in the regular season, you're you're sort of sticking to those base concepts. And maybe late in the fourth quarter, you maybe make some adjustments. Um, but in the playoffs. You know, you really are making multiple adjustments throughout the game. Yeah. Um, there's no easy answer for LeBron. It's like in our, in our case, in the Boston series, you know, there was a few games where we probably ran five or six different coverages or concepts against different plays, and we would just sort of cycle through at different times throughout the game. And I think that's pretty consistent with what a lot of teams do because. You're, 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 make, you're making adjustments on the best players. The best players are usually the smartest players. So they're going to figure it out. If you, if you only run one or two adjustments, you really, you're, you're exactly right. You really do have to mix it up and keep, keep them guessing. The problem with the body is he's too smart. He's, and he's too big and he's too athletic and he shoots too well. Like it's just, there's not a whole, there's not a whole lot you can do. Yeah. Is it? Do you feel like it's harder to play basketball in 2018 than it was in 2008? Do you do you feel like there's more oh flying oh out, running, God. just more exercise? Yes, it's a different game. It's a different game. I, I read something uh, yesterday. I think it was yesterday about uh, D'Antoni and how his Phoenix team shot like 25 threes a game, and that was considered sort of taboo at the time. Yeah. He said something along the lines of, wish, I wish I had known what I know now. I would have embraced it fully and shot, uh, you know, shot, shot 40 like we do now with the Rockets. But I, I feel like, so there's that evolution of sort of the sun. I would put the Orlando Magic and, and Stan and sort of how we played as part of that evolution. And then the Warriors, you know, and then the Rockets. Those, those to me were like the four real teams that sort of evolved into modern day basketball. Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day, how, how we play as, as my rookie year. Like it's, it's, it's archaic. It's archaic. And you've seen in the last, like really in the last like three years, like a lot of teams now make that jump into modern, into trying to quantify what, what modern, you know, modern basketball is in the NBA. It's funny the 2002 Celtics before your time in the NBA. And it was basically just Antoine and Paul. And they're just jacking up threes because they just didn't have enough talent and it worked and they almost made the finals. And then nobody else really did it. And then 
when it worked for you guys in 09, when you beat LeBron during a year when he was really, really, really great and did not seem and he was he's awesome against you guys. And it was just like Dwight Howard and threes. And all of a sudden you're advancing. And then it took a couple more years for people to figure it out. It's weird. It, it seems like the the answers were there last decade and nobody was really uh, looking at them. Hey, um, before we go, are you okay with Coach K just, just recruiting all these high, high prize freshmen, small forwards <laughs> and really – just throwing away Duke education, what it means, and just these one and done guys. You're okay with this? Uh, publicly or privately? <laughs> what, are we, what are we talking about here? Uh, you're okay, no, you're okay actually, with the I education this, going out the window? <laughs> when I had Brian, uh, Brian Calvin on, on my podcast uh, last month, I, I don't know if they edited it out because I, I, I kind of want it to be edited out, but I said, like, it's not. I'm a Duke fan for life. I've been Duke fan since I was seven years old. I, I love watching Duke basketball. I, I I love I love everything about it. And um, the last the last couple of years, it's 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 been increasingly more difficult to really like connect to to what I do as Duke basketball. And some of that is because of the one and rule and college basketball landscape has changed, and Coach K has adapted with the times and. I think there's a solid argument to be made that that's the right choice. Um, yeah. But like maybe maybe I am getting just a little old, and maybe I am saying that that I liked it better, you know, fifteen, fifteen, sixteen years ago. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's really it's, hard to follow as a fan. Too, like, well, for a Duke fan too, like you know, there was a connection that you had with like Shane Battier. There yeah. was a connection you would have with with me, let's say. Or with Duhon, and where you saw these guys, talented top ten recruits, come in as freshmen, learn from the older guys, and then take those lessons, grow over the course of three or four years, and and then they they become like men, and that's that's the Duke basketball that I grew up on. But having said all that, you know I I think kids should be able to go to the NBA whenever they. That's what you want. You know, I, it, yeah. I, I don't think that kids should have to stay in school for three years or two years or one year. They kids should be able to go after high school. And then whenever they're ready, they go again. Like if they go to college, whenever they're ready, go. Um, there's there's like an incentive now to just say like, well, if I can't, since I can't go out of high school, I'll just go out for my freshman year. You know, it, it, it's now like if you're a top recruit, like that's what you do. And you're not necessarily ready. Where I think, I think if you could leave after high school, the guys that could do it would do it. And then they'd go to college and maybe it's become the norm to leave after two years. And so now it's just like everybody, because it's one and done, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I, I look at somebody like Tatum and it's really hard for me to imagine he's not better off going through this NBA season than a 30 game Duke season, you know? So I think at some point, but, it, I, maybe it depends on the player to could, some degree. But could, he, but could he have, could he have left after high school? Yeah. Or should there be a system in place for him to become a professional at 18? Maybe not play in the NBA right away, but become a professional. And, you know, I, with, the, with the kid, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but I think he was a Syracuse recruit who decided I'm going to go play in the D League for a year. Like, I love that. I absolutely yeah. love that. Let's not, I think that. let's not pretend to play this, like, education game. Like, it's, 
it's a farce. We all know it. Everybody knows it. Those commercials during March Madness are <laughs> they're a lie. They're a lie. Right. Well, they're our boy Ben Simmons, like, do you, do you really think he would do that eight months at LSU over again? Like, I'm sure he just would have played. It's not even, but it feels like eight months. They, they don't, you don't go to school after. I mean, juniors yeah, you don't leave. do that. Right. Sophomores don't do that. You, you, if you know you're leaving in April when the season ends, you stop going to class. Yeah. It's not, like you, you get your grades in your first semester, and then you stop going to class your second semester. And but you're eligible because it's based on the previous semester. So, like, it's not. You're not get, you're not getting educated. It's not. It's better to be educated in basketball. I agree, and well, I think over the next ten years, this will work itself out. If 2018, yeah. if you're a high school recruit right now, you're going into the 2019 Duke class or 2022, I guess. How many years would you? How many years would JJ Redick from the guy from Duke who spent all four years there? How many years does he spend in college now? Yeah, sure. that's what I think too. Yeah, so like even like it, I, I think even I would have spent two there if I had had a different mindset. But it wasn't the mindset back then. You know, for me, it was like I wanted to play at Duke. I dreamed of playing at Duke. I dreamed of having my jersey retired at Duke. I wanted to do leading score at Duke. Like those were things that I thought about as a kid. So yeah. when I got to Duke, and and my first two years, I wasn't thinking let's go to the NBA. I was thinking, all right, I have three more years. I have two more years. You know, there was a timeline like set in stone in my mind. Now, if knowing what I know now, as an eighteen-year-old, I would have said, "I'm going to, I'm going to train my ass off. I'm going to do whatever Coach K says. I'm going to be in unbelievable physical shape. I'm going to do every camp in the summer, and I'm not going to worry about being a college kid. And I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to try to get to the NBA in two years. That would be my mindset. But my yeah. mindset at the time was, let's enjoy these four years of Duke, and I did. Believe me, I did. <laughs> well, there, there was just a story uh, about Donovan Mitchell. Where basically he's, you know, Coach Patino wanted him to come back, and he decided to enter the draft. And Patino's really no, you need one more year, you need one more year, and then he goes into the league and he's awesome, you know. And that there's that too, where I think sometimes the pe- the players might tr- trust a coach, but the incentive for the coach is to keep the player because it makes the team better. I think there are some yeah. coaches out there that will tell you when you're ready. But I'm not. I'm not convinced all of them are thinking that way, which is a little shady yeah. too. Here's a thought I have about this notion of like coming out when you're ready, or you needing another year. What are you learning in college basketball that's going to help you in the NBA? I, 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 I'm being serious. Like, what are you learning? First of all, I, I, I don't think the game is the same. The concepts are not the same. I watch a college basketball game. I watch basically a nondescript motion offense. Ball swing, ball swing, ball swing, and fans say it's pure basketball, but you're never actually playing the defense at disadvantage. So what do you? That's the NBA. Like you're, the whole NBA is you, you run a player, you call a setter, you get an ISO, you put the defense at disadvantage, and you make a play out of that. So that's not yeah. being taught in college. So how is going back to school for a year and playing archaic basketball? How does that help a kid? That's why I'm, I'm saying like a, a guy like with the with the Syracuse recruit is doing what he's doing to me, and hopefully the G League infrastructure will continue to grow as it's done over the last 10 years. So five, 10 years from now, a guy can say, I, you know, I, I know I'm not ready to play in the NBA right now, but it's better for me long-term for my career to go play in the G League. Well, I thought it was interesting. Mitchell, I agree with you, by the way. Mitchell said, they asked him why he was better this year than he was last year. And he said, 
because it's my job now. All I do is train to play basketball and think about basketball. I was in class, taking classes and living in a dorm. And, you know, now this is all I do. So of course I'm better at it. And that made sense to me. It's like, yeah, of course he's better at it. He should be better at it. And why would another people want to do that? So, um, JJ, people want to know when your podcast is coming back. Uh, I'll have an episode ready to go this week. Uh, I've got three guests lined up over the next two to three weeks. Um, So there will be a new episode uh, either on Friday or late Thursday. Okay. And and maybe we can... uh capture the 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 sixer summer a little bit too as it as it heats up and becomes interesting that could be could be a nice little yeah i will, I will be providing some some color commentary uh as we get closer to the draft and free agency for sure is there is there any any uh rookie that reminds you of you that's in this draft I know what you want me to say, and I'm not. No, say no, it. that's not. So, he doesn't remind me of you. I, I don't think he's like good. you. All right, good. Yeah. Good. It's not fair. Yeah. What's up, man? What's up, man? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're good. You're good. There's a guy about 20 feet away, but you're good right now. Sorry, I almost got hit by a, by a roof, 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 uh, a roofing company. Um, oh, that. That would have been a bad. guy that reminds me of me. I don't watch enough college basketball to, to give you a good answer on that. I I, I don't. Yeah, um, I didn't see anyone. I think I think the yeah. JJ Reddick types come out like every like three, four, five years, somewhere in there. There's that that yeah. the dude who just can curl off screens. I'm sure you feel a kinship with Corver though, when you watch some of the yeah. some of the shots he's. I, I just yeah. don't understand the off balance 28 footer coming off a screen, turning 90 degrees and just being dead, dead through the, uh, that I just don't get it. I don't know how you guys do it. It's incredible. I, I had a, I had a guy, our, our player development guy, my last year in LA guy, John Welch, who is still there now. And so he trained, he, he you know, rebounded and passed for me all summer before my last year in LA. And he said to me after the summer, he's like, I, I now understand why you're able to shoot the shots you shoot. Cause those are the shots that I practice. You know, those are literally, I'm not standing in a spot. How many spot up shots do I get? I mean, how many spot, how many times does Kyle Corver get a wide open spot up shot? It's not, so you right. have to be able to shoot on the move. And so those are the shots that you practice. Kyle, by the way, Kyle and I, like I, I became friends with him about seven years ago. Uh, we've texted throughout the playoffs. Like, oh, dude, I'm so proud of that guy. He's uh, he's had an unbelievable career, and he's another guy. Like, it's hard. It's sort of hard to root against. You're you're, you're rooting for him to to succeed and, and hopefully be a champion. You know, uh, I I agree. It is a little hard to root against Kyle Korver, especially because I met his whole posse at like 2006 All Star Weekend. It was exactly who the Kyle Korver posse was. We, we should have been. Um, <laughs> But uh, I can't even imagine. Is that when he still had the uh, sort of the surfer haircut? Yeah, the, that's when he looked like Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. He had the whole Ashton Kutcher. Yeah. Nobody yeah. knew who was who between them. Uh, but he, yeah, he's he's uh, he's crazy talented. JJ, I look forward to the return of your podcast. And uh, and you know, don't don't work too hard on your game this summer because I have a feeling you're going to be back in Philly. I I will be seeing you again next spring. Thanks for coming on. All right, thanks, Bill. All right. All right, that's it. Thanks to JJ for calling in. Celtics, Cavs tonight. My key Celtic to watch is Marcus Smart. 
I think this is the game where they decide if LeBron's getting his 44, fine. But Marcus, just make him work. Make him work 94 feet. Just make him work. Make him keep working. Do Marcus smart stuff. Don't be afraid of him. Get in his jersey. Annoy him. Pester him. Make him dribble. Make him expend extra energy. And uh, I think he's going to be the key guy. The other thing I'd want to see, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Jason Tatum, just can you go by J.R. Smith, get to the rim? Can you do that for us? Uh, it should be a classic. I love game fives. I think you learn a lot about the heart of a franchise and a team and a nucleus in a game five, especially when it's 2-2. Let's do this. See you tonight, Boston. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to check them out at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Thanks to PropperCloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Shirts start at $80 and are delivered in just two weeks. Perfect fit guaranteed. If a shirt doesn't fit, they will remake it for free for premium quality, perfect fitting shirts. Visit PropperCloth.com slash BS. Use gift code BS to get $20 off your first custom shirt today. And finally, thanks to Sonos. Don't forget about the Sonos One, which blends great sound with Amazon Alexa. That would be my recommendation. Right now, Sonos is offering the listeners of the Bill Simmons Podcast 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only. It cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Use promo code BILL10, that is capital BILL10, at Sonos.com to receive this offer. I know Memorial Day weekend is coming up. You think that means I'm going to take a Friday off on the BS podcast? No, I'm not doing that. I'm coming back. You can listen to it as you go wherever the hell you're going this weekend. In the meantime, after you finish this one, go right to the rewatchables on Thursday morning, social network. Great conversation. Me, Sean Fantasy, Chris Ryan. Don't forget to check out the ringer.com for our coverage of two increasingly fascinating conference finals in the NBA as well as a whole bunch more including the solo movie coming out Friday I know nephew Kyle's gonna be there are we working on Monday I mean yeah probably right that's it go Celtics see you on Friday I